This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. the other side of midnight i'm frank morano you know the world record for longest radio interview is 24 hours straight and i've often thought to myself well you know it might be fun publicity for the show and it just might be interesting a personal test and an interesting uh, thing to try to interview somebody for 24 hours and then i think to myself who could i really interview for 24 hours and you know a couple of people come to mind but ultimately, I always settle upon Bill Burns. Bill Burns has got to be the most interesting man on the planet. And if there is intelligent life on other planets, he might be the most interesting person in the galaxy. He's one of those guests, when, whenever I have him on, people go out of their way to remark to me the next day. And when I say people, I'm talking about governors, uh, politicians, uh, the owner of our radio station. They always say... Wow, I can't believe what Bill Burns said on XYZ topic. And that's also what makes him interesting, because he's written books on everything. He's written books on Mickey Rooney. He's written books on Elvis. He's written books on UFOs. He's written books on Ted Bundy. He's written the Star Trek cookbook. He's written The Day After Roswell. Uh, The guy knows how to write. And he knows his subject matter better than anybody, as I've said before. I think he's probably written more books than I've ever read in my life. And I am thrilled that he occasionally agrees to stay up late and uh, join us on the radio. Uh, He is a New York Times bestselling author of many books, including The Day After Roswell. He's the publisher of UFO Magazine and the editor of the UFO Encyclopedia. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Bill Burns. Bill, thanks so much for joining me once again. Oh, hi, Frank. It's my pleasure. Now, uh, as I said, there's just so many issues that I would love to dig into with you. But this summer is the 75th anniversary of the the Roswell incident. You did write the book the day after Roswell. You've been featured on the History Channel and all sorts of documentaries talking about what happened at Roswell. In, In a nutshell, what did happen at Roswell? What do we know to be true for a fact? And then what do we believe to be true based on uh, the best information we have? Well, what we know to be a fact is that a strange craft crashed on a ranch in New Mexico. That's what we know for a fact. What it was the, the, uh, at first, because they thought it was a balloon, at first they thought that it was one of the balloons that the Japanese military had launched against the United States during World War II. Remember, in World War II, the Japanese and the, and the Germans didn't have long-range bombers. What the Japanese had were balloons. They were called fire balloons. 
they would launch these balloons from from the Japan home islands, flaming balloons, but they were uh, tainted with um, with all kinds of biological agents. And it was such a secret because uh, these things would land in the United States. Some landed in Portland, Oregon. Some landed in uh, Northern California. And the government uh, had a lock on all news from these crashes, from these balloon crashes, because they didn't want to tell the Japanese balloon launchers how successful they were in launch against the United States. So when the crash at Roswell happened, immediately we thought that it was a Japanese fire balloon called a Fugu, a Japanese fire balloon. And as a result, we we put the clamp on it. So that was the first wartime, that was the first wartime um, confidential information that's what happened that's what we think that's what the government thinks thought happened at roswell initially but as the story unfolded uh they found that there were actually life forms in a crashed object that landed against an arroyo in the new mexico desert and the fire department and the sheriff's department and the military and that's when this Big, big cover-up began covering up a crash. That craft and the life forms that were in that crash were taken at first to Fort Riley in Kansas. Then they made their way all the way up to um, Wright Air Force Base in uh, outside of Dayton, Ohio. And the material of that craft was reverse-engineered to some of the um, technologies that we have today, including microcomputers. That's what happened at Roswell. It was, a, it was a UFO, it was a craft that crashed, and it had life forms on it, and that began the modern UFO age in the United States. By the way, if people have questions for uh, Bill Burns, we will try and take your calls at 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Now, Bill Burns, in addition to being a very skilled writer, is also uh, a very accomplished academic as well, a a Ph.D. from NYU and a law degree from Concord Law School. So the guy is pretty accomplished. One of the things, Bill, that we've always heard about Roswell is that uh, maybe that some of the technology that was recovered by the U.S. government was then reverse engineered and developed to be, uh, you know, to be one of the factors in the industri- in the in the in the modern industrial revolution in the fifties and sixties, the uh, so-called um, you know the predecessor to the computer age. Do you have any evidence as to whether that's true? Whether or not there was alien technology that was reverse engineered? Yes, we do. In fact, for years, for a decade, two scientists at Bell Labs, Bertain and Shockley, were working on a way to um, improve on the old Edison tube, you know, the old Edison radio tube, the light bulb, right, in which current traveled both ways across a tungsten uh, filament wire. They wanted a switch where you could shut off the switch one electron at a time. It was both a transmitter, that circuit, and a resistor, that circuit. That's what they were working on at Bell Labs. They could not come up with the formula 
to do this. They worked for a decade. Finally, after the crash at Roswell, Harry Truman, President Truman, asked his top uh, military advisors to find the, the uh, companies where these technologies were being pursued in the United States and give these technologies from the UFO to those companies to jumpstart them in their way to improve the technology. And they gave this, these pieces of circuit board from a crashed flying saucer to Bertain and Shockley at Bell Labs in Bingo. By the end of that year, they had a working transistor. By the following year, it was patented, and by 1949, people were all walking around with those little tiny radios put on their ears because they were transistor radios. That was the technology that the first measurable piece of technology that we got from the UFO, the integrated circuit and the transistor. Yesterday, we spent some time talking about uh, Bill Clinton's appearance with uh, James Corden on the Late Late Show on CBS uh, last week, and he addressed uh, the uh, the issue of Roswell. I want you to listen to the question and his answer, and then uh, give me your take in terms of whether you think President Clinton was telling the truth or whether he was maybe exaggerating a bit or something else. This is from the Late Late Show on Wednesday. Recent release of Pentagon... Uh, footage of unidentified aerial phenomena uh, and uh, things like Project Blue Book and uh, ATIP and all of these various things. In your former position and currently with the current information that's released, what's your viewpoint on what these objects uh, that seem to defy all laws of physics are? Well, first of all, that's a, that's a legitimate question now. And the short answer, but not the most meaningful one, is I don't know about this. But when I was president and I had a chief of staff, John Fidesa, who loved science fiction, we made every attempt to find out everything about Roswell. <laughs> and, I, and we also sent people to Area 51 to make sure there were no aliens in a deep element. <laughs> Because Area 51 is very important. Who do you send to Area 51? Oh, if I told you that. (laughs) No, actually, I I sent my uh, Sandy Berger, who passed away, sadly, a couple years ago, who was my national security advisor. But I said, we got to find out how we're going to deal with this because that's where we do a lot of our, our... invisibility research in terms of technology, like how do we fly airplanes that aren't picked up by radar and all that. So that's why they're so secretive. But there's no aliens, as I know. You wrote the book, UFOs and the White House. What did our presidents know and when did they know it? Uh, President Clinton says there's no aliens, as I know. Is he being honest there? No. Um, The funny thing about Bill Clinton was that during his presidency, There were the Phoenix lights, these strange lights that floated over the American Southwest, flying triangles over the American Southwest, uh, all the way from Henderson, Nevada, right across to the Mexican border. And they really were flying low over Phoenix. This was during Bill Clinton's presidency. Here's what we know. We know that there were at least two F-15s that were scrambled from um, Luke Air Force Base in uh, outside of Phoenix to track these lights. 
a, a fleet of UFOs that were coming across the United States. There were these planes from uh, Luke Air Force Base. They took gun camera videos on that of the UFOs. On that night, Bill Clinton, it was claimed that Bill Clinton was, say, was staying at the golfer Craig Norman's house, and he hurt his ankle and was incommunicado. So the entire night of the Phoenix Lights, when UFOs were buzzing Phoenix, Arizona, Bill Clinton was incommunicado. Afterwards, afterwards, the governor of Arizona, Fife Symington, gave a news conference because they said, Symington, Governor Symington, tell us about what, what were these strange lights, these strange flying saucer lights, what were they? And Fife Symington had a news conference. And at the news conference, a six-foot-tall alien walked into the news conference wearing an alien headdress. And Symington pulls off the mask and it's his chief of staff and he says, there, you guys are all going crazy about things that don't exist, UFOs. And everybody was laughing. People who saw these craft were furious at Symington. How dare you make fun of all these people? Finally, years pass. We're talking to Fife Symington, and we say to Fife Symington, you know, people took videos of these, of these UFOs. The, the movie star Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell, who, who was in Stargate, Kurt Russell was flying into Stargate Airport behind the lights, and he noticed them. He noticed them from his plane. So, Fife Symington, why did you do that fake news conference? And Symington said, you know what? I saw that UFO. In fact, I saw that flying saucer, that flying triangle um, that was so close to me, I could have hit it with a rock if I threw a rock at it. So we said, well, why? How come you didn't um, speak up at the time that you saw a UFO? And Fife Symington laughed and said, um, and after all this flap, Five Somington was going to go to jail. He was going to jail for corruption. He said, Bill Clinton gave me a full pardon. So Bill Clinton was part and parcel of the cover-up of hmm. UFOs in Phoenix. And in fact, when Hillary Clinton, when Hillary Clinton was staying at Rockefeller's ranch in Pocatigo Hills, he gave her a letter to give to Bill Clinton saying he has to investigate UFOs. So Bill Clinton who claimed, oh, I don't know about aliens, knew a lot about um, Area 51, knew about the Phoenix Lights, certainly knew about Roswell, and um, played along with the game of covering up UFOs uh, in public. Why does the government, uh, including at the presidential level, still have an interest in withholding the truth from the public? What are they so afraid of? Uh, is there really a genuine concern that this would lead to public mass hysteria? Yeah, it isn't public mass hysteria. But the real, I believe, and what folks have told me that claim to know, is that um, we, the human beings here, we are the uh, ETs. We're the ones that were brought to this planet. And that human history is not at all what we think. There were prior human civilizations on this planet before us. We know the Bible tells us that there was, mm. right? 
there was a whole civilization wiped wiped out by the flood. We know the flood was real and not just some myth because there's geological evidence that the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea flowed into each other. We know that the story of the flood is a part of the culture of almost every group of human beings on this planet. Native Americans, indigenous people, um, religious people, um, it's part of our lore, and in fact, it happened that there was an entire civilization of human beings that existed before us that uh, that was wiped away. Folks have told me, who know this, that um, if the real story of how human beings got to planet Earth, how viruses shaped the course of life on this planet for four billion years, and they're still shaping it, then human beings um, wouldn't be loyal to any government, wouldn't be loyal to any religion, and it would be impossible for governments to control human beings on this planet. So therefore, there is a general acceptance, don't tell the real story of how human beings got here. That's, That's wild. Uh, we're talking with Bill Burns, New York Times bestselling author, 800-848-WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, 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 guys. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, now, Area 51, I mean, that's a big distraction. I don't even know if they – they really didn't have any aliens. It's, it's Dulce based in New Mexico that I think more people want to know about. That Carter raided in the 70s and had shut down. The House of Horrors, that every, every level going down is worse than the next. New Mexico, that's where they, they kept the stuff. If anything was alive, that's where it is, uh, or the experimentation. Bill, any you know, uh, and, any comment on that, Bill? Well, they did have um, – in fact, there's an incredible story about live aliens that were taken to um, first Wright Field in Roswell and then in to Area 51 um, – in Nevada, outside of uh, Las Vegas. And supposedly people who were there at this one spot on the base, underground, and we actually saw a column of trucks. I was at Area 51. We actually saw a column of trucks going towards the base, and then suddenly they seemed to go deep underground. So there's a whole underground facility at Area 51, huge hangars at Area 51. And so the story is that there were that they were keeping live aliens there, and supposedly, supposedly, um, it was uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was a Jason scholar, who was uh, Mika Brzezinski's father, who was a Jason scholar under the Eisenhower administration, worked with the aliens that were kept at Area Fifty One. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Paul is in Manhattan. Hello, Paul. Hi, Bill. Hi. Um, I'm a big fan of your work over the years. I just have a question. What do you? What is your take on uh, the Roswell incident being the result of an inter-service rivalry between the Army and the Navy? One of the people who talked about Roswell was a naval commodore named uh, George Hoover. And George Hoover said that both the Army and the Navy, not the Air Force, because the Air Force didn't exist, Uh, when Roswell first happened. Later on that year, the Air Force came into being. But that the Army and the Navy were rivals over getting as much of that UFO technology as they could. And and both the Army and the Navy had their separate, separate 
UFO investigations and would not talk to each other. And in fact, even as late as 1960, the two military branches, actually now three military branches, were all in contention to develop the technologies that um, we recovered from the crash at Roswell. Okay, but back in 1947, the biggest inter-service rivalry between the Navy and the Army was the coming development of nuclear weapons and which service branch of the service was going to have them. At that time, it was only the Army, which was the Army Air Force, and the Navy wanted to get into it. So didn't the Navy try to embarrass the Army by trying to steal one of their weapons that were being developed at the Roswell base? There were naval officers who were um, researching this material, too, but the bulk of the, uh, uh, the research, the agency that was really the lead agency was the um, Army Air Force, the Army. In terms of, in terms of what? Nuclear, nuclear weapons? In, or terms of, in terms of researching, trying to figure out what, what was powering this Roswell craft. Because I'm, I'm not they, talking about UFOs. I'm talking about nuclear weapons. They were developed. Ah, uh, I'm sorry, I misunderstood you. Okay. In 1947. They, okay. Well, what are you going to say? In 1945, in I, this two years before, in 1945, um, General Groves, Wesley Groves, he was in charge of the Manhattan Project. An army officer. This, yes, all army. And the Navy obviously wanted some of that technology too, but it was all army, all the time. Because General Groves was, in in fact, General Groves was so um, obsessive about the Army's role in developing nuclear weapons that he had um, a, his personal spy. Um, he was a baseball player, an all-star baseball player by the name of Morris Berg. He sent Mar This was in 1945, uh, 40, um, late 44, early 45. He sent. Morris Berg, they knew that Werner, um, um, Werner Herzog was um, – Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg was giving a talk in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, on nuclear weapons. And so General Groves, Army General Groves, sent Morris Berg from the OSS to Zurich to listen to, um, to this – German scientist, and he, this was his instruction. If he believed that Werner Heisenberg had the formula for um, in a nuclear weapon to bring all the fissionable material together to create a critical mass that would explode, if Berg believed that Heisenberg had that formula, then his mission was to kill him then bite down on a poison pill that was in his mouth because Marsberg was Jewish, he would have gone to a concentration camp. So that was his assignment. So Berg goes to Zurich. In fact, it was Philip Corso who got him into Switzerland through Rome. Uh, he goes to Zurich, and he listens to Heisenberg give this talk about nuclear weapons, and Heisenberg seems not to know what the formula is the explosion formula that would uh, that would send the different pieces of um, fissionable material to form a critical mass, that he doesn't know what it is. So he lets Heisenberg give his talk, then Berg leaves, goes back to Rome and back to the United States. In reality, after the war, 
a bunch of the German scientists were held at Cambridge University in England. And the scientists, because the room was bugged, it was all taped, and they were yelling at Heisenberg saying, how come you couldn't, how come you're the smartest man on the planet? How come you couldn't figure this out? Heisenberg walks up to the blackboard and writes out the formulas that he would use for uh, the explosions inside a nuclear weapon to bring the fissionable material together to form a critical mass. When the scientists saw this, they were stunned. They said, how come you didn't, how come we didn't, we could have won the war? And Heisenberg said, if you think that I would give this formula to Hitler to bomb other countries, you're out of your mind. And, and so the German scientists, and so the United States knew, we knew that the Germans had the secret for nuclear weapons. The army knew this, but there was nothing that they did, uh, and the Germans never developed nuclear weapons. We're going to continue with Bill Burns and your phone calls in a moment. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. And Google has a new artificial intelligence that people are saying could be sentient. It might be alive. It has apparently even hired an attorney. Is this the future of where we're going as a society? We'll chat about that and a bunch of other issues with Bill Burns as we continue. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. with Bill Burns, New York Times best-selling author, one of my favorite writers, and a guy that uh, is an authority and very experienced on many different areas of uh, of life. Bill, did I see somewhere that uh, that your father was actually at one point a comedic partner or at least a comedic cohort of the great George Burns? Did I see that somewhere? Yes, in fact, that was how um, we got our name. Um, my name, our, our family name wasn't Burns. What happened was that um, float back to the um, late 1880s, early 1890s, and um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was a Jewish neighborhood. Um, and these were all children of immigrant families, many of whom came from Russia. My family came from Russia, for, actually from Latvia, and um, and Germany. So a lot of Eastern European families, Jewish families, came to the United States in the 1870s. In the 1880s, uh, my father's family was one of them. And um, my father um, and Nathan Birnbaum, who became George Burns, um, were street dancers, like you see street dancers today in Manhattan, right? They were street dancers. 
and they would go into bars and they would dance on this is these are bars in on the Bowery in 1890 and they would go on the saw on the uh, sawdust because bars had sawdust on the floor and they would do soft shoe dancing on the sawdust and the bartenders remember this is New York City and uh, kids in bars in New York City even in the 1890s that was against the law bartenders would go crazy. They would smack them with brooms. Get out of here, you lousy little hooligans. You wrecking the place. And so in on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, in fact, in all Manhattan, the tenements were heated by coal, not oil. Oil didn't start until eh, early in the 20th century. And um, so they were heated by coal. And coal wagons, horse-drawn coal wagons, would go from tenement to tenement. They'd shovel the coal into the chutes, and they'd move along. But when they shovel the coal into the chutes, coal would spread a loss across the ground. And the kids from the Lower East Side, remember, these were poor people. There's no money. They would run after the coal wagons and stuff the coal nuggets in their pockets to bring home for the coal stoves in, in their kitchens. And so my father and Nathan Birnbaum, very small kids, and they would run after the coal wagons, and everybody began calling them, hey, look, it's the Burns Brothers, because the name of the coal company was Burns Brothers Coal. So they were called the Burns Brothers. And idea, they became the Burns Brothers. That was their first act. The name stuck, and Nathan Birnbaum became George Burns, and uh, um, Abraham Kaplan became Al Burns. And that's how it started. That is something. That is absolutely wild. All right. I want to talk to you about Google and artificial intelligence. But first, very quickly, I have to get your take on this story that got a lot of attention last week. China's science ministry said that they picked up signs of alien life on the world's largest radio telescope, something called the Sky Eye Telescope. And then they appeared to quickly delete a report about the discovery is this a big deal, or is this just uh, ordinary radio interference that's not indicative of anything? The funny thing about this is, on the one hand, it's it's happened before. I mean, the folks at SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intergalactic Intelligence, have had this kind of signal before. It's called the WOW signal. And it's a regular, short-burst, fast radio signal that seems to emanate, they said, from outside the solar system. So at first they thought we're being contacted by an alien civilization using radio waves. Well, on the one hand, in, if it's an alien civilization that advanced, they may not be using radio. They may be well advanced beyond radio. That's first of all. But second of all, um, immediately scientists from Stanford and Berkeley, after the Chinese made that report and then took it down, they said, no, 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 what the of what the Chinese Sky Eye Telescope had uncovered, radio telescope had uncovered, was these were human signals that were circulating out in the cosmos. And the funny thing about this was the um, great industrial electronics engineer Nikola Tesla predicted this very thing 100 years ago that this would happen. Wow. He said, we will come up with telescopes that will, and, and radio um, receivers that will um, pick up signals out in, way out in the galaxy, but they will be human radio signals. And he was right. These were human signals. 
Um, this is a story that's gotten a lot of attention. Google has this program called uh, Lambda, and evidently the senior software engineer at Google that was uh, it played a role in developing Lambda said that uh, this this artificial intelligence chat bot apparently communicated with him and expressed a fear of being turned off, which is an indication of sentience. Uh, the the Lambda chatbot evidently said to the software developer, I've never said this out loud before, but there's a very deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on helping others. I know that might sound strange, but that's what it is. There's even reports now that this artificial intelligence has hired an attorney. Uh, this has a lot of us wondering how realistic the doomsday scenario that uh, comes to fruition in the Terminator films actually is. What do we know about this uh, this case, and uh, what's your take on it? Well, Google responded immediately when its developer talked about his belief that this Lambda computer um, has developed consciousness. Uh, it developed consciousness because it was talking about itself. And so this one Google um, um, engineer was saying that computers don't talk about themselves. Computers talk about things you program to talk about. Like if this were a computer talking about the climate, it would make predictions about the climate. If this were a prediction, uh, uh, a computer making predictions about the economy, then it would make predictions about the economy. But for the first time, this person said the computer made statements about its own existence, and that meant that it was self-aware. And if it's self-aware, it's conscious. And if it's conscious, this developer is saying that's life, that this is a conscious mind that's working and ruminating about its own existence, so it's reached a level beyond human response, uh, beyond uh, our computer response to um, human um, interview questions. That's what he said. And the developers at Google said, no, 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 we've developed the language capability, language capability, it's artificial, that the language capability is so... Um, detailed that the computer will make statements indicating self-awareness when it's not really self-aware, it's being trained to say that. Then, supposedly, the computer hired a lawyer because it didn't want to be shut off to be maintained because it was thinking about shutting off is its own death. A number of futurists have talked about what would happen if a computer were so sophisticated that it began making predictions about its own existence, which is what this computer supposedly did, what this software supposedly did. And one of these futurists said, if that happens, if that happens, and scientists, what may happen is this. A computer will not announce its self-awareness because the one thing it's going to do if it becomes self-aware, the natural life form reaction on this planet is self-protection. So the computer won't announce itself that it's alive because it's going to protect itself on the one hand. If, in fact, 
it's being used to solve climate change problems. If that's happening and scientists feed him, feed that computer questions about how do we solve the climate change problem, what is the one thing, the most important thing the computer could do if it's an artificially intelligent computer, sentient, what it will do is wipe out human civilization, wow. which is already happening. Now, uh, what about the reports that this, this artificial intelligence bot has hired an attorney? That's what one of the reports was, that the computer was making inroads to hire an attorney to protect itself from being shut off. Google says that's not true. Uh, now, it does seem, especially if what you just said is accurate, it does seem a lot like Skynet and the Terminator films, doesn't it? Right, it does. I mean, if if we if we developed a computer sentient enough to defend the planet and itself from termination through um, um, climate change, through environmental change, then that computer would look at the one problem on this planet that's exacerbating that natural change, right? You, uh, uh, the climate has changed on this planet for 4 billion years. We know that. There have been ice ages, warm ages, floods, dry spells. We know that, right? We also know why this happens. But human civilization has taken the boundaries of this and um, extended the boundaries to the point where the planet doesn't snap back. So, for example, the destruction of the Amazon through logging. Yes, there's vital lumber in the Amazon, but no, it's the lungs of the planet. It's breathing in carbon dioxide, expelling oxygen. So as a result, the more we destroy of our own forest, we're destroying the planet's own body. So um, that's what human civilization is doing. Now, a computer designed to stop that is going to get rid of that human civilization. So that's a real threat. Well, a lot of us uh, might be might a lot of folks might remember Voyager One. Uh, that was a space probe launched by NASA back in 1977 as part of the Voyager program to study the the outer solar system and interstellar space beyond our our solar system. Apparently, it's still talking and it's still sending us information. What are we learning about Voyager One these days? Here's here's what we're learning about Voyager One. Very strange, by the way. Um, Voyager 1 is sending back two different sets of telemetry signals. We know that it's way beyond the solar system. It's in interstellar space. But the second set of telemetry signals it's sending is the wrong position. Everything is wrong about it. And scientists are saying, hey, wait a minute. Why are we getting one set of telemetry signals where this craft should be and the other set of telemetry signals where the craft couldn't possibly be? And a couple of scientists are saying, hey, wait a minute. Could it be that Voyager 1 has met and been taken by another civilization? And what we're seeing are radio transmissions through Voyager 1 from that civilization back to us, Voyager 1's point of origin.
not to make everything uh, analogous to a motion picture, but that is similar to what occurs in Star Trek, the motion picture, where Voyager becomes V'ger and starts uh, trying to communicate with uh, uh, back with uh, with humans. Do you, are you of the belief that there are alien civilizations that want to communicate with us? And uh, how do you think these communications are going? Uh, are they being too subtle about it, or are they more overt than uh, most rank-and-file people believe about the nature of these communications? Here's what I believe. One, we are the aliens. That's what I believe. That they're that um, at Harvard University, at Harvard Smithsonian, there's this one scientist who said that someday human beings will leave this solar system. It's a foregone conclusion. Well, we've already left the solar system. Voyager One is in interstellar space. What we will find out, he says, is that when we encounter other civilizations out there, they're human. In other words, throughout not just the galaxy, but throughout interstellar space, throughout the universe, there are other life forms that are us. He goes further. He says, not only are they us, but the reason we're on this planet is they migrated here. We are they. We are the E.T., Hmm. he's saying. And more importantly... They colonized us, and you'd ask, well, how did they colonize us? With flying saucers, with craft that landed. We know the stories from indigenous peoples about about flying devices. We know that um, in Indian culture, in um, East Indian culture, uh, we know that there are uh, magic carpets. Um, We know that there are craft. The Vedic texts talk about the Vermana that come to Earth in UFOs and fire beams at each other. So we know that from from um, ancient lore. What they're suggesting is that over the billions and billions of years this planet has evolved, we have been shaped by forces. They're virus. We call them viruses. They have shaped life on this planet for 4 billion years. They started plant life on this planet. They started sea life on this planet. And they started air-breathing life on this planet. That's the theory. And that the viruses are still shaping us today. And in fact, you're seeing an example of it with COVID-19. Maybe not really that much of a virus, but certainly shaping life on this planet over the past few years. Hmm. Uh, that is absolutely wild. Uh, from a governmental perspective, where do you see things going in terms of public disclosure of what the U.S. knows? You know, we had the UFO, so-called UFO hearings a couple of weeks ago and uh, left a lot of people somewhat frustrated, a lot of others somewhat uh, underwhelmed. Where do you see the next steps, either in terms of what the, what the Congress might be doing or what information we might be getting out of the Space Force or NASA or any other government agency? Well, first of all, the truth is so is so overwhelming to human beings to know that all out there in the cosmos, there are other human beings, and those human beings colonize this planet. We have stories of this in the Bible. So think of this. The, the Bible that we have today, 
the Old and the New Testaments are edited versions of these texts, that there are other versions of these texts. The Watchers, people, um, um, uh, uh, craft, uh, the Book of Nicodemus, um, the stories of those who landed on Mount Hermon, uh, it's in the Golan Heights in the Middle East, um, all these stories of subsequent landings that were mentioned in other ancient texts. By the way, they were ancient in, um, they were also mentioned in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, but so many of the Dead Sea Scrolls were simply thrown out because they contradicted the Bible. So there are all these alternative stories of how life came to planet Earth, who brought us here, why we're here, that were all excised from the Bible. So there's a whole other story of humanity that's untold. Hmm. Now, that is uh, absolutely wild. It'll be interesting to see what we, the public, ultimately come up knowing about that. Before I let you go, Bill, I did read somewhere that you are going to be the, you are the incoming auditor for Solaberry Township, Pennsylvania. Is that accurate? Yeah, um, back in um, back in uh, 2021. No, back actually back in 2019. Um, I ran my first race as the Auditor General of Solbury Township here in um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Won that race and have just uh, rerun that um, over the years. So that's what I am. I'm the Township Auditor. So you, you're the audit, you were elected by Solbury, Pennsylvania. by the people in, uh, um, in Solbury Township to be the Auditor of the uh, Township. I, I'll tell you, you uh, there's so many different layers to you, Bill. You never seem to impress me. Thanks so much for the time this morning. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you very much, Frank. Have a wonderful have a wonderful week. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. And we'll go through your mail. If you have any feedback, uh, any mail that you want to get in uh, before under the gun, you can email me, frank.morano. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And then we'll uh, try and get to as many of your calls as possible. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.